Welcome to CTL Connections Short Bites, a series of interviews with senior engineering leaders. I'm your host, Peter Bell. The future's here. It's just not evenly distributed. At CTO Connection, we try to solve that by identifying, curating, and distributing the latest tools and techniques for more effectively building and managing an engineering team. Join our community at ctlconnection.com. I'd like to take a moment to thank our partners. Cold Climate is our global sponsor. Cold Climate Velocity helps CTOs, VPEs, and directors at companies like Slack, Gusto, and Pizza Hut align initiatives with strategic priorities, accelerate software delivery, and drive continuous improvement. I'd also like to thank Amazon Web Services and Carrot, our sustaining partners. I'd also like to take a moment to introduce our Short Bytes partner, Cloud Zero. You're spending a ton of money on the cloud, so shouldn't you know exactly what you're spending it on? Cloud Zero will help you organize and understand your cloud spend better than anyone else out there. You'll get visibility without the typical pitfalls of legacy cloud cost management tools like endless tagging or clunky Kubernetes support. With Cloud Zero, you can optimize your unit economics, decentralize cost intelligence to engineering, and create a shared language between finance and technical teams. You'll be able to answer questions like, who are my most expensive customers? How much does this specific feature cost our business? What is the cost impact of re-architecting this application? Join companies like Drift, Rapid7, and SeatGeek by visiting cloudzero.com slash ctlconnection to get started. Again, please visit cloudzero.com slash ctlconnection to get started today. Today, I'm speaking with Dan Langevin, co-founder and CTO at Veracred. Dan, thanks so much for taking the time to talk today. Thanks for having me on. So maybe just to give people a little bit of context, uh, what does Veracred do? Veracred is an API middleware company connecting insurance carriers in the benefit space primarily, and they typically have legacy systems with insure tech companies that want to interact with those carriers around creating policies, uh, administering those policies, and quoting and other types of interactions around sort of buying and selling insurance. Got it. So um, we want to talk today about building an engineering culture of accountability and curiosity. I'd love to maybe kind of go through your journey with that. Presumably, you were both accountable and curious when you were the only programmer. Like, you know, how did you how did you get into this space? And what was the experience in the early days when it was you or just a, a small dev team? Yeah, so the, the journey really started with me and my co-founder. There were two of us. I was writing all the code. He's, he's a, a, our CEO. And at that point, I was doing product. I was doing engineering, writing the code myself. We started to build out a little bit of a smaller team around uh, around the engineering side. Actually, didn't even have a separate product at that point. And we're all very well aligned. We had a very specific vision that we were building towards. The, the scope was relatively narrow at that point. And it wasn't really a problem keeping ourselves accountable as we're co-founders or very early employees or uh, having or you know curiosity around the domain because we're we're all very you know aligned around what we're trying to build. Was there a point in time when you realized that you were no longer going to get this for free? Was there a particular interview or a particular like employee like without naming names where you're like, oh, not everyone's going to care about this as much as I do? Well, it wasn't really so much a, a point in time where that became obvious. It was. Over time, as the team grew to somewhere between five and 10 people, started to find that engineers weren't as close to the problem as, as I was. 
we built out, started to build out the product team at that point, and that certainly helped a lot because product could help to, to translate that. But I still felt like we were missing the context for some of the engineers that I had early on building it and wanted to really recreate that as closely as we could. So what were the first things you started to do to try to recreate that that kind of deeper context and understanding of and empathy for the underlying customer problems? Our first attempts were really to do that through the product team and have the product team kind of own that, speak with customers, and then translate that knowledge into engineering. And that helped, but it wasn't fully successful because engineers would still, it was still sort of a game of telephone where engineers would still have questions that product wasn't 100% sure of, or they would you know, make assumptions in the code that actually were not correct. And like we, our, our domain started to shift uh, away from, from the actual business domain. So what we started to do was to move engineers earlier in the process and really shift from product doing the solutioning, which is what we were doing early on. That was sort of our, our first attempt is product talks to customers, starts to do the solutioning, comes to engineering with like a solved problem and shift a little bit earlier in the process where product really comes to engineering now with a problem statement. And our senior engineers, the, the senior ICs primarily, are helping to decide what the scope is and how we're going to solve that problem and attack it. And that does two things. One, it allows them to build that context and ask the right questions up front because they know what the, the desired output is as opposed to what the, the desired scope is. Uh, and two, it really just gets them much more invested in the success of a given project or a given, given feature set because they feel ownership over, over the design. Um, so it really kind of, it, it solves both of those problems at the same time. So when you made that shift, and I think that makes sense, because I think a lot of people make this mistake of thinking product tells you what to build and engineering just builds it, but there's design decisions in every line of code. And it's just impossible for product to get that fidelity and to, and to nail it. So then I guess I have two questions. My first would be, what did that mean in practice? Did that mean like engineers are doing customer visits? Are they you know, doing first level customer support is sometimes a thing to like, oh, that's why we shouldn't have built it this way because there's bugs every day. Like what kind of ways did you use to help your engineers to get in your customers' heads? So we don't tend to have engineers do direct customer support just based on the, the nature of our, our business as a API middleware company. It's not like there's a, there's a call center that they can listen in on or, or something quite like that. Right. But what we do is we have, we'll have a, a, a small steering committee that product will lead for each major initiative and engineering is on that steering committee. So product will bring in customer information. We'll also be talking with our, you know, our own sales and marketing and product marketing teams around what exactly we're going to build, what the solution to the, uh, to the problem is. And engineering is involved really at that point, but it's the key thing is that it's before final scope is decided. So that kind of gets into the, the predictability pieces. The, you know, the second problem that we, we started to, to see out of this is that when product or, you know, with, along with sales and, and the business come to, came to engineering with a specific scope and a specific timeline, that created, I mean, it tend to be that the scope was too, too large to fit into the timeline as, as is, is common. Mm -hmm. uh, and it also created a, a, a lack of ownership and accountability on the engineering team where, you know, we don't want to say, 
we need X done by this date, and it has to do exactly this um, without getting some buy-in. And we want to get that buy-in as early in the process as possible. And so having engineering further up the chain and helping in the solutioning also sort of help to manage scope at the same time and provide more predictability. And then did that impact the the kind of work and the kind of things that the product team were doing? Or did it just give them an engineering voice at the table so they could avoid going down rabbit holes that weren't going to be productive and get more buy-in from the engineering org? Yeah, so there's a couple of things that that accomplished. One, our product team had been doing a lot of very technical design and specification. And it actually made more sense for engineering to be doing that in the first place. Just it's, This is kind of due to the nature of our product. So this doesn't necessarily translate to every type of organization. But it freed up, it frees up a lot of time for the product team to focus on on the go-to-market strategy and you know what we're building, what the solution we're delivering, how we're going to package the product, all of the things that they didn't have as much bandwidth before because they were doing you know kind of detailed system design, right? Um, so that that was one um, one big win. And the other is that engineers are by nature creative thinkers. So having them early in the process, we could sometimes identify a solution that was much faster to market than what product or, or business might have suggested to begin with and really solve the problem just as well or almost as well. And getting that up front with all the context, it's a lot easier for engineers to provide it at that point than it is after the solution's already been designed and kind of handed off to engineering to implement. Makes perfect sense. Now, did you notice that... As you changed the requirements of, of what an engineer was, did that impact your interviewing process? Like, how did you start to think about hiring for engineers that, that would have the curiosity and the, the kind of customer empathy? It didn't really impact our interviewing in a significant way. I would say the team that we had influenced the change in process more than the change in process influenced the team we had. We, we, I think, have historically done a really good job of hiring engineers who are curious and want to ship product and want to know about the business. And I don't think we were doing a good enough job of giving them everything they need to do that. So they actually, it sort of came from, from the engineering team to some, uh, to some amount. Yeah, absolutely. And then to ask, are there some questions? So clearly you're doing this great job of finding engineers that, that care about solving problems, solving the customer problems rather than just like, let's go write an algorithm today. Um, are there some questions you've found in your interviewing process that have helped you to identify the more customer focused engineers? There's a few things that we do in our interview process. We like to ask engineers to describe early on a project or a system that they're really proud of implementing. And what we're looking for there is really how deeply do they understand the problem they're trying to solve? Are they just talking about a technical solution or are they proud of something that they put together that delivered value to end users ultimately? And then the second piece there is how deeply do they, do they want to understand the domain and the problem and how much does that come through in, in their answer? So that, that gives us pretty good insight into how they think about their work. And, you know, the question is quite open-ended. It's really like, what, tell me some, a project that you've completed that you're really proud of and why. 
Uh, and, and it could be because of the design, it could be because of the out, outcome, but we, we follow up with questions around how they got to that solution that really focus on how you know product and business focused they are. Got it. And then we're talking earlier, and you, you're talking about curiosity, both hiring for it, but also being able to, to foster it. Are there things that you do within the organization now to, to keep the team curious? So we do team work around new technologies, languages. You know, we have a, a tech club that, that does that and, and people like doing that. I wouldn't say that that that's kind of a fun thing. It's not necessarily a translates directly into, you know, the way that we, we write code or do things at, at, as a team. Um, but a lot of the things that we, we spoke about earlier of like moving engineers further up into the process really fosters their curiosity because they like to know how things work. They, they ask a lot of questions at some of these product steering meetings and they get a lot out of it. And so it, it sort of reinforces their natural curiosity where if we don't have something like that, they might start to, to disengage a little bit and be like, well, you know, I'm not going to not going to really understand this anyway, or I don't really have the right resources to, to ask the right questions. So I'm just going to focus on, you know, the, the ticket that's in front of me. And and that's, you know, the exact opposite of, of what we want to encourage. Got it. So so if there were two words in the title we're talking about was one was curiosity, the other was accountability. And I know that you, you talk about accountability, but also predictability. So maybe to dig into predictability a little bit, how do you think about like managing that iron triangle, right? You know, time, resources and scope. So predictability is really important, I think, for any business, especially as you scale. And especially for it on the enterprise side, our sales team sells the product we have and the known roadmap, right? Like in the next three to six months, they're they're using that as uh, as part of their sales pitch and how they're how they're talking about the product and how it's going to evolve. So we need a, a high level of predictability in the at least in the near term, and ideally, you know, even six nine months out, have a, a good level of predictability about what we're going to deliver. So how do you get that? One, you need, you need to manage scope. Uh, we talked a little bit before about some of the things that we do to manage that in terms of solutioning from the engineering team. And the second is, is we need accountability within the team and commitment within the team that they, you know, we've all agreed that we need to hit certain scope by a certain time frame for legitimate reasons, you know, not because the, you know, we decided this is what it's done is because this is what the market needs. And if we don't finish it by this day, if we don't ship it by this day, sales is going to have time to sell it before customers need it or, or whatever the, the, the justifications are. So it's really around the shared commitment, which creates accountability. And that, that accountability creates predictability on the roadmap. So, um, I, Makes makes perfect sense. I'd love to dig into the 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 accountability driving the predictability piece a little more because I, I find that sometimes the, the the challenge is that when you estimate something, what you should really be doing is estimating it's a probability distribution, right? When you say it's mm -hmm. going to take five days, that means there's a fifteen percent chance I'm going to find a pre-built library and be done in a day and a half. There's a 15, 20% chance that we're still going to be working on this in two and a half weeks. And there's like the, the median outcome, maybe or there's like 50% of the area under the curve says it will be shipped by day five. So like, how do you, I mean, firstly, how do you think about that estimating process? Do you give dates? Do you give ranges? Do you give probability estimates? Or do you just say, look, 
we're going to ship something in a week. It will kind of solve this problem. And we're just going to flex on the, the fidelity of the implementation. It's closer to the latter. So we tend, what we tend to do, and this isn't true of everything because sometimes there are things that are feature boxed, but what we tend to do is time box. Yeah. And we build a time box that's big enough to say, here are the critical must have features or problems to solve. And here are some nice to haves. We want to be as close to 100% certain as possible that we'll finish all of the must haves and some of the nice to haves in that. And that gives us a little bit of flex that maybe everything we're, we're way under on every estimate. We just get the nice to haves, right? But, and, or even it goes a little bit over, but we're, we're pretty confident that we're going to get the things we absolutely need to within that time box. And then when you look at the relative scope of must-haves and nice-to-haves, is it like two-thirds and a third? Is it like 95% and 5%? Like how close to the wire do you bring it in terms of the, the, the relative scope of the stuff you can flex on and the stuff you can't to make sure you hit your numbers and your dates? It depends on, on, the, on what we're working on, on the project, uh, for sure. But there's a rule of thumb, you know, two-thirds, one-third, or 75%, 25% is an ideal kind of mix. You know, you when you estimate at a very high level and you're building a roadmap that's months long, you're not talking about specific stories. It's really hard to get exact dates and exact scope. Um, so that's why we tend to use the feature, uh, the, uh, the time boxing rather, because that way we know, we feel like we, if we spend two months on this with a team of three, we'll solve the major problems, right? Like we'll have a product that will at least hit MVP or solve the major problems that we're trying to in, in that track. And if we get a little bit more than that, great. And if we just get that, then you know that's still success as well. Now, what is your planning and estimating cycle? What are, if I'm a, a senior or a staff engineer on your team and I'm involved in the planning, how is there quarterly planning? Is there weekly backlog grooming? Like what how do you go from this is what we're going to do in 2022 to are we going to ship this next week? Right. So we do quarterly planning. We plan each quarter uh, about a month in advance of the quarter. And those are team level you know, commitments that we expect we're going to hit, if not 100% of the things in that quarter, the vast majority, like you know, 95%, maybe, maybe something slips here or there. Then when we look at you know, Q2, Q3 going out, so second quarter, third quarter out, Second quarter, we're looking at maybe 50% certainty that those are the things that are going to get done in that time frame. Uh, third quarter out, it's maybe 25 or 30%, uh, you know, uh, certainty that we're going to, we're going to hit that scope or we're going to do it in that order. So that's how we think about it. So that allows us to narrowly focus on the next quarter in terms of the very specific planning. And then we do two week iterations, like two week sprints, uh, pretty typical where we break it down into specific stories. We'll have an epic, typically that is one of the longer tracks that might be, you know, it might be a month, it might be sort of two sprints, it might be like four sprints, typically not much longer than that. And within that, then we start to have backlog items and we move those backlog items into the sprint. We do try to hit the sprint commitments so we're we're pretty uh, we're watching that pretty care pretty closely that's that's something that we've been been honing in on over the past three or four months trying to get those sprint commitments to be as tight as we can and use that to to feed predictability in going further so it's really you know start with a nine month 
plan and then you really focus on three months and then you really focus down to a couple of two week iterations. So maybe two to three, two week iterations to start. So now you're talking about six weeks and that's a lot more manageable to predict what you'll be able to get done. And then what is it, what are the meetings look like? So let's say we're going to go into, it's a month before Q1, we're, we're going to be starting to do our um, planning. Is this the whole team locks off in a room for three hours? Is it like one or two engineers and a product person who are pulled off to the side to do the, like how, how, do, how do you balance that and how much time does it take? So our teams are, are generally anywhere from four to six people or three to six people. And typically there will be two or three of those are more senior ICs and that group plus the product manager for that team are really going to be focused on planning the quarter. There'll be input from others on the team and there's a whole bunch of product work that goes on upstream of that, right? So we come in with a set of problems that we're working towards solutioning. We've identified what, what they are, what the most important things are. And at that point, We've gotten high level estimates from the ICs as well. So this is all done. That's all done further in advance. So as we get into the quarterly planning, it's really more cleaning up what had been the six month plan and turning it into the three month plan. Um, so it's not a, uh, it's not a full team, um, event or a thing that we do as a centralized exercise. Each team does it individually. We bring it together. We look at it holistically to see, do these things all make sense together? Do we feel like we're missing something that we should maybe switch around? And then and then we do any last minute changes at that point. Got it. And then is this a purely qualitative process? Like these are the four stories that we're going to ship in this quarter or the, you know, the one epic we're going to ship in the sprint? Or do you actually put T-shirt sizes, number of stories or like some kind of like planning poker game around? Like, do you put numeric estimates against stories? We do, and there's two levels. So we, we do numeric estimates against the stories as they actually go into the backlog. And we use like a Fibonacci sequence. And we use that for, for sprint planning to figure out how many points of effort do we, do we usually do in a sprint? Do we have normal capacity or more or less capacity? And then we, we use that to kind of build out number of stories that are going to go into the sprint. For the higher level estimates, the things are, you know, are we going to spend two sprints or four sprints on this? That's a little bit more back of the envelope. We have, we bring in the senior ICs who are familiar with that part of the code base. We talk about ways we could solve the problem. And that's how we arrive at what actually goes on the roadmap. Once we get into sprint planning, then it gets a lot more detailed because it's this specific story is going into the sprint and we think it's going to take, we think it's two points of effort versus five points of effort uh, and all that sort of level of detail. And then uh, there's one question I always love to ask. So how far up the Fibonacci sequence do you go? So there's like, you know, one, two, three, five, eight. Do you have like 55, 89, 144? Like uh, how big does this go? I think our scale in Jira goes up to 13. Our rule of thumb is nothing should be bigger than a five though. So if something gets estimated an eight, it should be broken into smaller pieces. We we generally stick to that. So five is is really as big as we go, practically speaking. That makes sense. Yeah, because I see. And in fact, have you have you noticed that that range has decreased over time? Like, well, you used to have thirteens and twenty ones, and now you're like, <laughs> those are just crazy because they're always like two weeks under or two weeks over. Or or mm-hmm. do you find that you've you did you always just start with like five and under when you could? Or 
we've decreased. I think our our highest we allowed used to be eight, and we brought it down to five. So not not a huge change, but. I've always found personally that it's really hard when you're thinking about a specific scope of work, like two weeks seems like the longest anything could take. Right. And then it's just two. And then it just keeps, it might be actually a month's long effort, but you know, in my, in my head, I always think like, yeah, I could probably get that done in two weeks. (laughs) And then that two weeks just keeps kind of getting shifted out. Uh, So we try to to choose a, a, you know, an estimate that's, that's under two weeks worth of effort so that we're able to think about it a little bit more accurately. And do you use any like formal techniques like, you know, do you take a Delphic approach where like all three engineers have a card and they put it down at the same time? Or is it just like, you know, the most senior person in the room says, sounds like a five to me? No, we usually we do a planning poker sort of uh, approach. There's a, there's a tool that we use uh, online that I can I can look up the name of yeah. <laughs> at some point. And it, it works really nicely with our we don't tend to have a ton of disparity in estimates uh, on most of the teams, at least. And we typically go, we tend to go with people, with whatever estimates kind of on the higher end, if someone, uh, uh, there's a discussion usually, but oftentimes we'll end up sort of talking ourselves up into, into a slightly higher estimate. Got it. And then do you ever do retros on the estimates? Do you ever do an end of quarter or end of year? Hey, there was a consistent 15% delta between estimated and actual. If you, if you assume capacity is this and did, do you ever try to do that as retro to help people to improve it? Or do you find that's not a great use of time? So we use a moving average of the last three sprints for capacity. Mm -hmm. So that way, because these are just made up numbers, right? They're not, and they're designed to be made up numbers. They're not supposed to be hours of work or days of work or something like that, because right. those are really hard for people to think of in terms of uh, what their what their availability to actually do work will be or mm-hmm. to write code will be. So we sort of take the opposite approach where we just tune the number of points in the sprint to our actual throughput in prior sprints. Makes perfect sense. And then I guess the last question I'd ask is, it's amazing to have a team that cares about the custom problems, that's curiosity, that's focused, that's really trying to be accountable. There, There is a risk of a dark side, which is, you know, we're really not making it, but all I need to do is pull a couple of all-nighters and stay here for one weekend and we'll be fine. How do you balance making it a, a marathon, not a sprint and sustainable pace with still hitting those numbers, especially when there are inevitable crunches? Yeah, so we talk about that with the team pretty regularly, and and most our, our team is on the senior side, so they have generally developed the ability to balance work and life to to some extent, which you you don't always have when you're when you're a little bit earlier in your career. You kind of want to just you know you're willing to you're willing to put in tons of hours and, and spend tons of time. And when we see people who are on the junior side on, on our team doing that. Tell them to pull back, and it's it's more of a cultural thing that we expect that there will be times, sure, when something needs to get done. There's like a problem with production. We need it happens in, in the middle of the night or on the weekend, and you know we kind of need all hands on deck, and you know that happens. But that should really be the exception and not the rule. And if it's happening often, it's a sign that we need to fix something else. Something else needs uh, needs to change either. System monitoring isn't good enough. We haven't paid down tech debt, and now we have. We're starting to see issues uh, pop up in production, or the roadmap's too aggressive, and we need to adjust it. And it's just we, you know, our estimates weren't right, and we need to kind of take a step back. So that's something that we don't have a 
we don't have exactly a formal process to monitor, but it's the team is is pretty good at, at self-correcting for that kind of stuff and raising their hand if they feel like expectations are not realistic. That's great. Unfortunately, Dan, we're out of time, but thank you so much for sharing your, your experiences and wisdom. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.